Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Hey, wherever you are, however you're listening... Welcome to America's Talk Radio Show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. We are live on WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago. 847-866-WNUR is the number in studio. Hey, be one of our listeners who gets to have their say on air. Call us, 847-866-9687. Or leave us a message on 224-2189-BOX. That's 224 224- Two one eight nine two six nine. All right, Kevin Newbery, the director, joins me on the show this week. He's currently directing Bellini's Norma at Lyric Opera of Chicago. We talk opera, we talk film, we talk music, we talk politics. That is in 20 minutes. But first, in our Chalk Talk segment, I talk you through my do's and don'ts for going to the opera, what to wear, where to sit, when to eat, among other top tips. And at 9.40, you get all your opera headlines and my hot takes on them in the two-minute drill. Well, the inevitable has happened. This is the inevitable solo show. I warned you that this was going to happen at some point, that there would be a night when it was just me, George Cedarquist, doing the show. And that night is tonight. Oliver Camacho is booked. Dinah Fisher has got a splitting headache. Tobias Wright is in Florida. Math and Black is in rehearsal. Giovanna Jacques is at work. They're all out. I guarantee you that they are going to be drinking. Every time I mention Stuttgart, they're going to take a drink. Every time I talk about Joan Sutherland, they're going to take a drink. Those guys will be so drunk by the next hour. Opera Box Score here on WNUR 89.3 FM. Again, number in studio 847-866-WNUR. All right. Hey, look, um, we're going to talk sports in one second, and then we're going to get to the opera. First of all, for our new listeners, let me just give you a little recap on the philosophy behind this show. It's a new year. We've got some new folks joining us. So in my opinion... Sports are the only true common denominator left in our society. And a couple years ago, I was making that New Year's Day pot of chili, as you do, at least in our household. That's a tradition. And I had this vision. I had this idea that what if opera could be as pervasive in our culture as sports? What if all the names of all those sports players, those athletes, What if those were as common as opera singers could be in our households? What if we knew the opera repertoire like we knew our Major League Baseball teams and our NFL teams? What if our fans were as fanatic about opera as they were about sports? What if we talked about opera in the same way that we talked about sports? And that's where this show came from. So we do opera content we put it into a sports talk radio format we take callers on the air when they call in uh we do a whole variety of segments pop quizzes reviews gossip headlines the repertoire the lineup changes every week the panel changes every single week that's how the show came about we're going to talk a little bit sports before we get into the opera I, i can't help but but tell you about what i'm thinking about the super bowl so The Falcons dominated the Green Bay Packers yesterday. Patriots dominated the Pittsburgh Steelers yesterday. I don't know who saw that coming. I don't know what the Vegas odds were, but I don't know who saw that coming. For me, this was the two teams won that I did not want to win. All right, so Packers, they're an NFC North team. They're in the same uh, division as 
my Detroit Lions and I'll, I'll say my, in air quotes, Chicago Bears. I do follow the Bears. I really for, follow the Lions more because I'm from Michigan. Uh, and so I like, I like the Packers, too. I like Aaron Rodgers. I think he's a great player. I think he's put together a fantastic second half of the season. And, man, that guy could not catch a break yesterday. What absolute domination by the Falcons. Now, the Patriots, I used to love the Patriots. Again, Tom Brady, former Michigan Wolverine. But, man, this election cycle, when there was the whole thing with the Patriots coach Bill Belichick writing this letter to Trump in support of everything he'd accomplished, there was a little bit of tweeting going on from Tom Brady about his support for Trump, that the magic of the Patriots wore off really fast. Plus, they have been to the Super Bowl so many times, it's like, give, everyone, give someone else a turn. I understand Tom Brady defeating Commissioner Roger Goodell and his deflate gate where Brady was punished at the beginning of the season and had to sit out some games. So I understand that narrative. I understand that story. But at this point in the season where we want to have a great Super Bowl, I don't see it in this matchup particularly. And I certainly don't want the Patriots there. All right, enough sports. Let's get to the meat of the show. Let's start off with our Chalk Talk segment. Chalk Talk. On Opera Box Score. It is Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist here doing the solo show. I told you it was going to happen at some point. Tonight is the night. Number in the studio, 847 866 9687, or WNUR if you got letters on your keypad. All right, so when was the last time you saw an opera? Was it the first time you'd ever seen an opera? Was it a show that you'd seen somewhere else before? I want to give you some advice on what sorts of things you want to think about when you go to the opera. It's just my opinion, of course. So the first thing to think about is what kind of an opera house are we talking about here? Is this a big house or a small house? Uh, and where is the house? Is it in America or is it in Europe? So there's a couple different, there's a couple different factors involved here. If it's, if it's a big house in a big city, uh, I, and this is the question, is what to wear now? Ultimately, you want to you wear whatever makes you feel comfortable, I think. I don't think opera should be an excuse to, to be fancy. I think if you want to be fancy, you can be fancy any time of day that you want to be. Opera shouldn't be an excuse there. Ladies, here's what I'm thinking. Bundle up. I feel like opera houses are freezing. And I, I don't take my wife to the opera because, frankly, she's not that interested in it. But when I do go with other women, they're always freezing cold. I'm not a big scarf guy. I don't, I don't see the scarf thing. Um, so, uh, ladies, wrap up in the scarf. Stay warm. Air conditioning's always on in there. Not too fancy, though. I, I feel like the opera gown is dead at this point. I don't... I, plus, you're going to be sitting in that seat the whole time. You know, you're in the dark like 95% of the time when you're at the opera. So if you do dress up, no one's going to see it anyway. Just my opinion. Now, guys, here's my thing. Definitely not too formal when you're going to the opera. Oliver's going to kill me for this. I bet you Oliver loves to dress up. He puts on his lipstick and his pantyhose, probably. For me... No tuxedo. I've never... No, that's not true. I was going to say I'd never worn a tuxedo to the opera. I've worn a tuxedo once to the opera. I don't think I would even wear a tie to the opera. In fact, most of the time, like if I can put on some clean tennis shoes, that's, that's a, a victory. I do, think, I do think you want to wear a jacket, but there's lots of good jackets out there. You know, my jacket's from Uniqlo. They're not sponsoring the show, by the way. Uniqlo, there's, there's one on North Michigan Avenue now. I bought my Uniqlo jacket in San Francisco. It's a fabulous Japanese uh, tailor, very affordably priced, and if you're a little guy like me, fits you really, really well. Uh, hey, let's go to the phones. Anyone on the phone lines? Hey, George. Hey, who is this? This is Kenny from Michigan. Hey, Kenny. What's going on, man? Well, I thought I'd call and see what your response was to the Grammy nominations for Best Opera Recording. You know what, man? You couldn't pay me to watch the Grammys. 
I know, I know. You know, you know. I hate the Oscars. I hate the Grammys. I hate the Emmys. People wonder if I ever leave my house <laughs> to go somewhere else other than the studio. What's your take on the Grammys? Well, they've got an interesting lineup this year, though. Um, <laughs> Tell me about it. There are five operas up for the prize. John Carilliano's The Ghost of Versailles, mm-hmm. the L.A. Opera Orchestra recording with James Conlon conducting. Right. Handel's Julius Caesar, the Il Giardino Armonica recording with Giovanni Antonini conducting. Mm-hmm. Featuring Cecilia Bartoli and Anne Sophie von Utter. That's quite a lineup. Yes. Let's see. There's Mozart, The Marriage of Figaro, Chamber Orchestra of Europe recording, Yannick Nezitzegin conducting with Thomas Hansen, Carl Zymanowski's King Roger. Interesting. King Roger. No, opera house. Yeah, nobody ever does King Roger. I know, I know. And finally, a contemporary opera, Jennifer Higdon, Cold Mountain. Cold Mountain, right, exactly. The production that was at Santa Fe a couple years ago. Right. So what's, well, I mean, what's your pick? Oh, Jennifer Higdon, of course. Just because she's a Yankee? She's a Yankee. She's due to have some nice uh, publicity. And I love Jay Hunter Morris, so... Jay Hunter Morris is great. He was on the show back at the end of last year. I heard that. You heard that show? He was great. I uh, I think you're being swayed here by the by the hometown girl or the home country girl. Uh, and it's the same reason that I would not pick Ghost of Versailles either. I I um I don't know if there if an American composer, which would be either Higdon or Corleano, could win the Grammys. This is a boring choice, but just going off your list, I'm gonna say that recording of Marriage of Figaro. It's not exciting, but that conductor, uh, Sagan, at the moment, he is very hot, very sexy, just took over running the Met, of course. It seems like that would be the, the odds-on favorite. Right, especially since it's Deutsche Gramophone recording. So. Right, exactly. What else has been going on in your world, Kenny? Uh, not a whole lot, not a whole lot. I... Um the recording of Bel Canto that was on Great Performances. Great, that's, so that's in your queue? That's ready to be played. I didn't see it come down to Chicago and see it when it was playing, so luckily I'll be able to watch it someday. Yeah, that's on, that's on my list too, but it's below Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks for the call, Kenny. Really appreciate it. Take care. Have a good show. Ciao. What do what Kenny wears to the opera? I, bet, I don't think Kenny wears a tie either. So where do you sit? This is, this is a good question. Um, where's the best place to sit? I go back and forth on this. I used to want to sit in the front row because I, I wanted to see those singers sweating. I wanted to see how hard they're working. One of the directors that I worked underneath, uh, he was my mentor, Jay Lessinger, he would coach other singers, and he would say, you're making it look too easy. People are paying good money, and they want to see some real drama, and they want to see some real effort. You want to sound great, of course, but you're, when you're singing right now, this is they were saying this to, to young singers who were very, very good at what they did, you're making it look too easy. And when you sit up close, man, that's when you figure out how tough this is, how much breath it takes, how many calories do you think those singers burn? I mean, they're like farmers, you know. They burn like 9,000 calories in a show. Imagine if that show is Wagner or Berlioz, Offenbach, and it's three and a half plus hours. And put those guys on an IV after it. So sometimes sit front row. I also the upper balcony is a great place to sit as well. Really good sound in the upper balcony. The place you do not want to sit is underneath some sort of balcony overhang. For me... It reduces the sight lines from the top of the proscenium arch down. Might block the super title screen, so you might not know exactly what's going on. But the sound quality, for me, it feels muffled. That is the place that I would avoid. Now, of course, at the top of the segment, I talked about being in a European opera house. Here's the deal. 
and my colleague's are going to start drinking now. In a European opera house, one of those little beautiful horseshoes where that's what the ground plan looks like, just a horseshoe, and there's like five of them stacked on top of each other. Every seat, perfect. Maybe the boxes. The boxes aren't so great. You're kind of looking across the theater, and people are looking at you, and I mean, that's why they were designed that way, so that people could be seen rather than see the show. But in general, every seat in a European opera house tends to be good. Hey, uh, Amber, when you go see a show, theater, musical, where, where do you like to sit? Um, I, I enjoy sitting right in the middle for sight purposes, just because I like, I like to be able to see everything and see everyone. And uh, I don't know, I think that gives me the best line of sight, and it, it gives, really gets me into the show, I feel. So you're, you're kind of like right in the middle kind of girl. Oh, yeah. yeah, I would, I would go on the sides just, just to be close, probably. I used to work in a box office, and I would always tell people they hated to hear this. I was like, you want to go, go sit on the side and be really close. And, man, they, didn't, they definitely never trust me. All right, so when do you eat? We're talking about food, so this is, this is very problematic. For me, you got to eat beforehand. you got to load up, load up on those calories. You do not want to be eating in intermission, partly because, like, I can't afford the food. Exception would be a Wagner opera where the intermissions are going to be 30, 35 minutes. People sitting in the stairways and the stairwells of the opera house shoveling sandwiches into their mouths. <laughs> it always makes me laugh. I love, I, it's like, it's a marathon, right? And so they have to feed themselves, otherwise they're not going to make it. Now, if you're in a European opera house, and this is awesome, this is a little secret actually, is that all those European opera houses have little restaurants that are for the staff. They would, in German, they would call it the cantina. Um, and the food is it's subsidized by the government, so it's dirt cheap tends to be really good. I think they're virtually all open to the public. Just nobody ever knows. You go in there, have a, have a nice cheap beer, nice plate of schnitzel and potatoes, hang out, see some opera singers, feel like you're part of the family. See, that doesn't exist in this country. This is the problem, is that there's no place to hang out after the opera. It's definitely the problem here in Chicago, at Lyric Opera of Chicago. The loop's dead, once the curtain goes down, where are you supposed to go hang? Same problem with Chicago Opera Theater over at the Harris on the north end of Millennium Park. Where are you supposed to go hang? And this is an advantage that those medium size or smaller size, even the micro-sized opera companies have, is that you're going to be sitting super close for the whole thing, and you can hang out after. You can get a drink, and you can talk about the work that you've just seen. You can continue the conversation. This whole show is about continuing the conversation about opera and taking it out of the opera house, getting it into bars, restaurants, dinner tables, getting it on the train, talking to people. Where's the conversation about opera going to happen? And if we don't have places to do that right by the opera house, I don't know where the conversation is going to happen. Kevin Newbury's coming up next, by the way, on Opera Box, where you definitely don't want to miss that. You definitely want to stick around for that. I'm George Cedarquist doing the solo show here. 847-866-WNUR is the number. 847-866-9687 is the number to call. You can also leave us a message. 224-218-9BOX is the voicemail. Email operaboxscore at gmail.com and Twitter at Opera Box Score, hashtag Opera Balls. We're going to step aside, and we'll be right back. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. We are back, and we are looking at a pretty lopsided matchup, Jim. That's right, Ron. I mean, in one corner, we've got a 175-pound guy, and in the other, a 6,000-ton heavyweight train? Jim, this guy has no idea what he's getting himself into. It's no contest. Every day, people tempt fate and die trespassing on railroad tracks. See tracks? 
Think Train. It takes 12 years to create a graduate. It takes about the same time to create a dropout. And at the end of the day, the difference between a child becoming one or the other could be you. So United Way is asking you to make a pledge. Tutor a child who needs help. Mentor a kid who needs someone on their side. Volunteer to read to children. Because when a child advances, we all advance. Be a reader, tutor or mentor. Give, advocate, volunteer. Live United. Take the pledge now at liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way. Check out my new time machine. Does it work? Hit the button. Hey, it's Napoleon. Read. Check out the future. Hey, you have a nice house. Why don't I? You didn't save any money, buddy. If only there was a way I could go back in time and fix that. Save something for the future. Put away a few bucks, feel like a million bucks. For free ways to save, go to feedthepig.org. That's feedthepig.org. This message brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ag Club. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Opera Box Score here on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. George Cedarquist doing the solo show tonight. Oliver's out. Dinah's out. Man, the whole crew. What do these guys have? Hot dates? Well, some of them are engaged, I guess. <laughs> I wonder when the last time was Tobias went on a date. Said probably in the in the Obama administration. The first Obama administration. I'm, I'm going to try not to get started on the political thing here. Uh, hey, Kevin Newbery, my guest on the show, he is, in my opinion, the most important director working in America today that is not an artistic director. And I think that's one of, he has many great qualities. One of his greatest qualities is that because he's not an artistic director, because he's not a general director, he has a lot of freedom to focus on the work that he wants to do. Here's something else that makes him great. He has absolute total class. He's one of the classiest guys in this business. There's a lot of people in this business who have no class, you know, like the old uh, Bill Cosby joke, like school on Sunday, Fat Albert, no class. He has absolute class. I met him at the Opera America Conference in 2013, hung out with him later that summer in San Francisco when I was doing the Maryland Opera Program, met up with him the following year in New York, Writes back to every email, gracious with his time. Here's the last thing that is so great about Kevin Newbery. He is pushing this art form forward with such passion and such imagination. And as you're going to hear, he does not discriminate between all these different disciplines. He understands what it is to be working in a complex art form like opera. He calls himself an omnivore. He does opera, he does theater, he does musical theater, he does film. He does standard rep, he does new work, he does big scale stuff, he does small scale stuff. Everything that this man works on is incredible, complex, he is getting the praise he deserves. I got to hang out with him this afternoon, check out uh, what he and I talked about. Uh, talking with Kevin Newbury, we're sitting here on the third balcony at Lyric. Uh, you're here in town doing Norma. I am, yes. Opens next week? Next week, Saturday night. This Pan- Saturday. Are you panicking? No, not at all. This has been a great process. It's our fourth time doing this production. We opened in San Francisco and then went to Barcelona and Toronto, so... Sandra and Russell, our two leads, have done the show many times, and I love working here at The Lyric, so it's been a very smooth process. It's going to be a great show. I cannot wait to see it. It's one of the first operas I was ever in. Oh, really? So I played one of Norma's children. You did? Yes. That's so great. Way back in the day. The kids have a really big role in this piece. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and also, and also Russell, our tenor, is African-American, and Sandra is white, so our kids are these two wonderful mixed-race young actors, so it just very gives cool. it a little bit more of a... I don't know, a little bit more of a political edge, which I love. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about politics. Sure. Um, you were part of the marches on I was, Saturday. absolutely. Here's the thing. When Trump was elected, I was very conflicted. Part of me was like, art matters no more. I need to, you know, fight this fight in the trenches. My art is insignificant. And the other part of me was like, art is now more important than ever. And that's the way that I, as an artist, am going to combat this. Where were you on that spectrum? I think we all felt that way. The first two weeks after the election, in the spirit of candor, I went into a depression. I was so upset about what was happening. 
And you could really feel it in New York. Being on the subway was like being on the subway the day after September 11th. It was like a city in mourning. That seems like a hyperbolic analogy, but it isn't, having been there for both of, the, both of these events. And so for two weeks, I thought, I've devoted my life to something that doesn't matter, doing work for people that think the same way that I do. But now I feel completely the opposite. And I'm, you know, I'm very fortunate. I'm 39. I've been doing this for a while. And the kind of work that I'm doing is often very politically charged, things like Fellow Travelers and Bel Canto, which I did here in Chicago last year. I'm doing a new opera called Counting Sheep, which is a Ukrainian guerrilla folk opera about the Maidan Revolution. So I have just decided that I'm going to put all of my effort into doing even more politically charged, socially relevant work and make sure that I take those shows to places that aren't just New York and Chicago and L.A., where people tend to think like we do, but to, like, Fellow Travelers opened in Cincinnati, which was an incredible experience, and even though a lot of the audience knew about the Lavender Scare during the McCarthy era, the subject of that piece, a lot of them didn't, and it really did change people's minds, and so I'm committed to using this platform that I have to really make a difference through my artwork, so I feel galvanized now. I want to talk about your film career. Sure. Just a little bizarre, yes. I suppose, for an opera show, but I'm just, I'm fascinated by that because I know nothing about film at all. So I think some people would argue that film is really made in the editing room, mm-hmm. right? It's like, yeah, you, you take all the shots, the shots have to be composed, but the story is really told in the editing room. But obviously in opera, we're working in a real-time live medium here, and so the story is told uh, in front of us as it unfolds. I mean, mm-hmm. what is it about film that is attractive to you? Well, I am a total omnivore. I, I love film. I love all kinds of live music. I love dance. I love opera. And so I really like to bring the different art forms together and cross-pollinate. And I'm a big fan of interdisciplinary work. So my film work is very musically driven and I often say that I direct opera like film and film like opera. And doing all these operas all around the country, I'm very lucky to do it for a living, but it's ephemeral, and that's what's so great about live theater, and then it's over. And in addition to being a cinephile and loving all sorts of film, I wanted to make things that would last longer. It's pretty rare for something like Bel Canto to be on PBS, which is really thrilling, but usually the curtain comes down, you either saw the show or you didn't, and film I have forever. So my most recent film is a seven-minute, I guess you could call it a classical music video, and the score is by Jimmy Lopez, who wrote Bel Canto. It's a complete narrative film. I'll send it to you. But it's, uh, there's no dialogue. It's all musically driven. So trying to push the limits of cinema and opera to bring in the sensibilities from the other side of the fence. So I, I love doing all of it. And when I do three operas, I can't wait to do a movie. After a movie, I can't wait to do another show. And I'm directing a lot of plays and musicals and film and a couple TV shows that I'm developing. So I just love all of it. It's all about good storytelling. When you're on set, though, making a movie, like, hurry up and wait is kind of the catchphrase. Like, do do you find that frustrating, that there's so much technical apparatus that goes into it? Again, that's my perspective, just because I don't know really how film works. I, I love it because it's all a learning experience, right? So I... I went to undergrad at a liberal arts school. I didn't go to grad school. I've always kind of tailored my own education by doing it. When I was first getting started, I was assisting people, and then I got jobs and just learned by making mistakes and the hard way sometimes. And so my three films, especially the first one, I surrounded myself with people that really knew what they were doing. So it wasn't hurry up and wait for me. It was absorbing everything, learning all the terminology, setting up the shots, and working with my close friends that I work with in both mediums. So I, it's always an ongoing learning experience. So I love it. And it, in some ways, I think directing opera is really great training for film because there's no time in opera either. You have a four-hour piano dress rehearsal to make all your changes. And so every single minute counts. And... It, that was good training for making the kind of choices you need to make making a film. That Okay, we have a half an hour left at this location, and we have three shots left. We can only get one of them, so which one is it going to be? And thinking on my feet like that is it's so inspiring, and it, it just does something to your metabolism and to your brain where it's, I mean, it's hard. There's nothing harder than making a movie. I mean, it makes going and doing an opera seem 
like Child's Play, because film is incredibly stressful, and there's so many moving parts, and our last film had a lot of outdoor scenes, and it poured rain for two days, so what do you do? We had an underwater camera and a drone camera, and you can't take those out in the rain, so... Well, we had two days less to shoot, so we had to make some changes. Talking with Kevin Newbery on Opera Box Score, how's the food on a movie set? Well, we actually made two of my films at my parents' uh, property. They live in a former boys' camp in New Hampshire, so it was all home-cooked meals by caterers, and my parents were a big part of it. So we ate really well. You always want to have a lot of balance bars and zone bars and Red Bulls around and coffee, but the, the meals are... You want to feed people really well on a film set, really right. well-balanced meals with lots of protein and vegetables and lots of Red Bull, and everyone's happier. <laughs> I just, whenever I look at a film that's shot in Chicago and mm -hmm. like I'm sort of, you know, rubbernecking by, I mean, there's like hundreds of people just standing around. I mean, this is a, a different yeah. scale than you're working on, but it just seems like there's so many moving parts. And now I get what you're saying about opera, too, like that comparison of all these moving parts. Right, absolutely. And... You know, and our films have been very hands-on. Everybody helps, and we all carry the lights, and and uh, I like that. I grew up in downtown New York theater as a, in my 20s. That's what I did, so I like getting my hands dirty. At a big union house like Chicago Lyric, I'm not allowed to touch anything. I don't go on stage and move things around or paint scenery, and I don't want to do that 12 months out of the year, but it's fun to do one project a year where... I'm actually painting and getting ready and getting my hands dirty. Well, let's talk about scale a little bit more, because like you've worked in some of the biggest houses in America and in the world. You've also done what I would call like micro-opera stuff. You've done prototype festival. You've done small summer festivals. Mm -hmm. How? What keeps you working on the small-scale productions when like you could be just in the big houses? Well, the small-scale productions are... I think really the future of where the art form is going. And I think audiences are craving uh, the intimate experience of being close to the human voice. And there's room for all of it. I, again, I'm an omnivore. I love going to a place like the Lyric and hearing Sandra Ravanovsky in this giant theater and that voice hitting you in the back of the house. I love going to a Madonna concert or a Beyonce concert or U2 and having that sound hit you in the back of Madison Square Garden. But when you're in a small space, like I did this, uh, this theater piece called Kansas City Choir Boy with Courtney Love, and, and there were 100 people in the audience, and it was a video installation on the ceiling and uh, six acoustic guitars and a choir and a string quartet and electronic music, and, and you can't experience that in a proscenium theater or a Broadway house. And so that kind of immediacy and that immersive quality, I think, is what audiences are really craving right now. Uh, it's harder to make a living doing those shows, of course, because the budgets are smaller and the ticket prices are lower, but Belcanto sold out. The world premiere of Belcanto sold out every performance. The prototype sells out everything. People are really craving new work about what it means to live in the world today, and I can tell you firsthand that that's true because that's the kind of work that I'm doing. And I love Norma, and people are going to love Norma too. A great piece about a really strong woman. It's, it's fantastic, but the it's the new stuff that people are craving right now. I certainly am. All I can do is make the kind of work that I want to buy a ticket to and I want to see and work with collaborators that inspire me every day. Kim Whitman from Wolf Trap Opera right. was on our show, and she said the next big thing is small. Absolutely. What does that mean, though, for an institution like San Francisco Opera or the Metropolitan Opera? What does that mean for a big institution? Well, San Francisco Opera has that smaller space now. Right, and where it's a chamber space and they're programming three or four shows a year. And Chicago, uh, Lyric Unlimited, they're doing lots of smaller shows too in different venues around the city. So there's room for both. And that's the full spectrum of opera. You should be able to see Norma on a Saturday night and Kansas City Choir Boy on a Sunday afternoon. There's room for all of it. Uh, but that is the way things are going. Every company that I work for Without qualification, every company in the U.S. is developing or has developed smaller scale fringe opera spaces outside of the main stage house. Mm -hmm. So that's very encouraging. Is, is opera in the mainstream in American culture? Is there a place for opera in the mainstream of American culture? Like, is that where it should be? Is that where it's heading? I think the future of opera is incredibly bright let's say, in the next 10 years. 
there's a lot of transitions that are happening. There's going to be a couple of rocky years in between, especially in terms of making a living as an artist. But living in New York and going to the Prototype Festival and Under the Radar and Coil, it all happens in January. And I like things that are hard to categorize, right? And I love Kansas City Choir Boy as an example. Fellow Travelers is a good example because... Yeah, there are, there are operas because it's all music, but it's also music theater. Fellow Travelers feels like a Broadway show with maybe more, I don't want to say more sophisticated music, but I just did. Um, you know, more classically driven 19-piece orchestra, so just a little bit more musically based as opposed to synthesizers and violins, you know, or fake violins and stuff. And So I think it's really exciting when you don't know what to call it because opera often becomes a dirty word. If you say, if I say I'm a film director, nobody thinks about the worst film they've ever seen. They think about the best film they've ever seen. If you say that you direct theater, people don't think, God, I've seen some really bad theater, but opera's different. Maybe you went to one opera when you were a teenager and it was an old fashioned production and the singing wasn't that interesting and you didn't like it, and then it becomes a dirty word. So we have to rescue opera from the stigmatism. And I approach every single show I do as though it might be someone's first time in the opera house. And so how am I going to make it theatrically compelling so that they want to come back? Talking with Kevin Newbery on Opera Box Score, what, uh, what have you seen that's not opera, that's not even music or not even theater maybe, that has been compelling to you? Like, what's, what's a book that you've read that's been really great recently or a TV show, although you, you are working in TV as well. I'm trying to mm-hmm. think of something that's sure. not in your wheelhouse that you really like. Yes. Uh, well, Sonia Teja is one of my favorite choreographers. I just saw her new piece, You'll Still Call Me By My Name, at Live Arts in New York with the... Uh, the Bensons, the Bensons is some wonderful band that was a hybrid of dance and theater and live music. That was a real highlight for me. I think Transparent is probably the most exciting show on television. Uh, I loved A Little Life, that novel. I'm reading The Underground Railroad right now. Uh, I really, I just read this book called Sapiens that's all about cultural uh, anthropology or rather evolutionary psychology like the history of humankind how we got to where we are the new planet earth i mean come on the new planet earth just helps you understand exactly where we are in this country when in doubt about how we got to this place go and watch planet earth let me ask you about this um headline that was on our show last week okay which was from the metropolitan opera peter gelb announced that he was canceling the Calixto Bieto production mm-hmm. of Forza del Destino by mm-hmm. Verdi in order to save some money right. for next season, about a million dollars. Why would he make a decision like that? Of all the ways to save money, why would he pick that director, that show? I would guess that it's more the title than the director. The obscure stuff doesn't sell as well sometimes, right? And so every company is going through some financial challenges right now. Costs are going up, and ticket sales and attendance are going down. So except for the new material. It's the world premieres that are selling out everywhere. So, well, Let me pick up on something else then that you just said. You sound surprised when you were like, the new work is selling out. Hmm. Would you have said that? at the beginning of your career? Would you have said that maybe 10 years ago? I've always been doing new work. I I came up directing new plays in New York, and I've done a lot of standard rep, too. I've done a lot of canonical productions, for sure. But the, the appetite for new work, especially really socially relevant, politically charged work, has just been a consistent in my career. That's the stuff that people have gotten the most excited about. There's nothing like after fellow travelers everyone's staying in the lobby for an hour after to talk about their experiences or I'm doing a new musical called 86 about the AIDS years during the 80s and it's the right time to go back and look at that and they let us die for a decade right and then here we are with this new administration immediately taking off the LGBT rights link on the White House website right so these things are so important Belcanto we had a discussion after every show and in a 3,500-seat theater, a 1,000 people stayed to talk for 45 minutes about the piece after. So 
all I can respond to is what I see, and that's people lining up outside the door for new exciting work. Hey, really appreciate your time, buddy. Thank My you. pleasure, anytime, yeah. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. He is so articulate. Kevin Newbury, by the way, on Opera Box Squared. This is George Cedarquist. The show is on WNUR 89.3 FM. When I listen to that interview now, it gives me three things on my to-do list. This is what Kevin makes me do. I want to see more modern dance. I want to go listen to more live music. And I want to read more nonfiction. None of those things is directly related to what I do as a director. All of those things are very indirectly related. And when you listen to a guy like him, as articulate as he is, and as well-versed in so many different media as he is, you realize that there is a place for all of those in this complex art form called opera that we do. Really appreciative to Kevin Newbery for being on the show. Bellini's Norma opens at Lyric Opera of Chicago on January 28th. I am definitely going to be there. It's a show that's near and dear to my heart. As you heard, I'm not going to miss it. If you're in Chicago, check it out. If you're not in Chicago, consider a trip. And we're going to step aside on the show on Opera Box Score. Coming back with the two-minute drill. We'll see you in a second. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. State Fair? Yeah! Well, you can't. Well, you see, Billy, when you throw away money on wasted electricity, you throw away everything you could have done with it. But now your parents are becoming energy efficient. They could save hundreds of dollars a year and take you to the fair next year. I want to go now. I know you do. Saving energy saves you money. Learn more at energysavers.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. When Dad needed help getting around, I became his driver. Soon enough, it was up to me to be his housekeeper and financial manager, too. When he moved in, I became his cook and even his nurse. But no matter what roles I play, I know I'm still his daughter. We understand the roles you play. So to help, we created aarp.org caregiving, where you can connect with experts and other caregivers. Visit aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Today, my new dad and I shot off a rocket in the park. Today, my new son and I failed to shoot off a rocket. The rocket launched into the air. And then crashed into the pond. I'll never forget that day. I'll never forget that day, even if I tried. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of kids in foster care will take you just as you are. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know in two minutes or less. Eugene Opera in Eugene, Oregon, struggling with accumulated debt, has scrapped the rest of its season. It will hold town hall meetings to hear what the public want and whether the company can sustain an opera season. Los Angeles Opera announced last week that its 2017-18 season will include an unprecedented collaboration with the Lyric Opera of Chicago, the Joffrey Ballet, and the Hamburg State Opera in Germany. Lyric and L.A. Opera will co-produce the 1774 Paris version of Gluck's Orpheus and Eurydice. The Joffrey Ballet will appear in the production, presented in French, directed, choreographed, and designed by the Hamburg Ballet Artistic Director, John Neumeyer. According to the Chicago Reader newspaper, Lyric Opera Chicago has announced that its Chicago Voices program will end next month for good, except for its community-created performances, which will end next year. Elizabeth Diller, founding partner of Diller, Scofidio, and Renfro, the architecture firm, is producing an opera for the High Line. Dubbed the mile-long opera, this production will be set along New York's new favorite attraction, which opened to the public in 2009. She'll be working with composer David Lang. 
Over to the disabled list, Sophie Koch has pulled out of the entire run of Bizet's Carmen at the Metropolitan Opera to be replaced by Clementine Margain. And finally, Detroit Symphony got its Mozart Festival started last Thursday. Detroit Tigers first baseman Miguel Pagrera helped kick things off. Composer and director of the orchestra Leonard Slatkin gave Tigers vet a chance to conduct the orchestra for a few notes. And then Cabrera returned the favor by slapping Slatkin on the ass, locker room style. That's the two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and Dinah Fisher. Hey, it is America's talk radio show about opera, period, here on WNUR, 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. Again, number in the studio, 847-866-WNUR, or that is also 847-866-9687. Let us know what your hot takes are on this week's opera headlines. I got a couple. Eugene Opera, I said back in 2016, I said that there would be a mid-sized opera company that was going to collapse in 2017. I said it. I'm surprised it took such a short time. Now, first of all, Eugene Opera is not dead and gone. If you read the articles, if you listen to what the artistic director, Mark Baudet, has to say, he has high hopes for this company. And he is doing the smart thing right now by saying, look, we are in some financial problems. We need to cut bait. We need to let that fish or those fishes go. We got to clean house, figure this out so that we can keep this thing going. Backstory is basically the company did John Adams Nixon in China in 2012, and it was artistically a success, but it left the company in a serious hole of debt, I think about $100,000, and it basically has been trying to recover ever since then. Right now, current deficit's about $90,000. Um, that's what the last estimate was. I don't think we have specifics on, on what the actual current is. But when you look at the programming, I don't know how surprised you'd be that the company's in this spot. Uh, first half of the season was Much Ado About Nothing by Berlioz. And then an, a, an opera trio, it was called, which was essentially one act taken from three different operas presented in a single evening. That's not something that I would want to see, personally. And I'm trying to figure out what the, what the reasoning was in the programming behind that. You look ahead, then, to the two operas that they had to cancel, West Side Story and uh, Peter Brook's adaptation of Carmen. Now, the Carmen thing makes sense because the Brook adaptation cuts the show down to a very few number of characters, gets rid of the choruses, male chorus, female chorus, kids' chorus... That makes sense to me, that you would try to do that. I don't know the reasoning behind West Side Story. Yes, I get that that is a popular title. I get that it's a well-known title. Coincidence, perhaps, that Houston Grand Opera is also doing West Side Story next year. But when you think about the rights, and you think about the needs of that show, what do you really need for West Side Story? What do you really, really need? Do you really need opera singers? No. What you need is dancers. So it's surprising to me that those were the pieces programmed for the second half of the season. It seems to me that that Mark Baudet is a little confused. He's confused the way that the rep is presented with the rep itself. You know, just because you're doing the standard rep doesn't mean you need to do it in a standard way. You read the articles, he seems apologetic that this is a company, to its credit— that was able to get away from traditional repertoire and get into modern and contemporary opera and didn't have success with it, so now they're going back to that first model. It hasn't worked for other companies. I'm not quite sure why it's going to work here. My hope is for them that they can continue. My hope is for them that they can find new ways to tell these old stories. But ultimately, and I've said this before, I think you're doing your audience a disservice by producing standard rep in the standard way. Orfeo, that old chestnut, 
you know, I saw the Mark Morris production, and look, it, it's not technically a ballet. It's it's what they would call an azione teatrale, so like an opera that's on a, a, a myth, and then it has choruses and it has a lot of dancing. The Mark Morris production from the late aughts, 07, was it? Or 2008, maybe? At the Met was great. This production's got... Um, Maxim Mironov as Orpheus, and the American soprano Lizette Oropesa as um, Eurydice. They're doing it in French, so Eurydice. She's a knockout, by the way. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Harry Bickett's conducting. It's a great choice of piece. There are so many different artistic elements. Chorus, singing, dancing, myth, legend. Who doesn't want to see that? Such a great piece. And look, these co-productions are hard to pull off, but honestly... It's really the only way to make large-scale works happen these days. So what happens is a number of big companies get together and say, look, we're going to split the production costs on this. The show is going to stay as a package. It's going to go to these different houses over two, three, four years. Going to be able to have a great audience. All those different markets are all going to get to see it. By the way, Hamburg, it's the second largest producer of opera in Germany after Berlin. There are more productions in Hamburg of opera than there are in Munich. There's actually more productions of opera in Dresden than Munich as well. Munich should be ashamed of itself on that stat. It's from operabase.com. Back home here in Chicago, Lyric Opera of Chicago, the Chicago Voices program. You know, I'm going to be honest that I haven't paid a lot of attention to this. And I think the reason for that, and this is just me talking, is I didn't really know what it was. And I wonder if if they could do it again, if they were looking at how they marketed it, they would be more specific on what this really thing is. But they're going out with a bang, I'll tell you that. There's a big concert in February. It's got blues music, rhythm and blues music. Jesse Mueller from Broadway is singing. Matthew Polanzani from the opera world is singing. Renee Fleming, the artistic visionary of this whole program, will be singing. And it has had success. There was a one-night-only community-created performance back last September, which was absolutely packed at the Harris Theater. Oliver can tell you more about that. Where three groups presented original one-act musical theater pieces, and it's this community-created performance that is going to be part of the program next year until it, it goes away. How about the High Mile? I, you know, I've seen it at the High Line, excuse me. Not the High Mile. You can tell I'm not from New York. I've seen it. It's like the 606 here in Chicago. If you're from Chicago and you've been on the 606 or uh, vice versa, if you've been in New York and you've been on the High Line, basic, basically the same thing. Looks cool. Doing an opera up there, I, I just hope that they're going to figure out the sound. Looking at the credits, they've got a sound designer on board. Smart choice. It's open-air opera. I don't know if it's going to be ambulatory if folks are moving down the high line while they're watching the opera take place. I don't know what the story is. I know David Lang, the composer, is great. So I think it's going to be great. I don't think I'll go see it. But I was intrigued by that. And how about um, how about this thing on the Detroit Symphony Orchestra? Uh, Miguel Cabrera He's the heart and soul of that Tigers team, by the way. I love the Tigers. You know, that I'm smiling at Amber here. The Tigers, I remember when they won the 84 World Series. Hey, Amber, were you even born in 1984? I was not, George. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I had the feeling that you were going to say that. I remember the Tigers winning the 84 World Series. This is why my son, who's seven, when the Cubbies won back in November, I was like, remember this moment. Remember this moment. My kids got to stay up late to watch all those games. But, uh, hey, I put a link to the video on the Opera Box Score website, operaboxscore.com. That's what you're listening to, by the way, on WNUR. George Cedarquist doing the solo show. It's, it's a hilarious little video. Leonard Slatkin, famous conductor, respected conductor. I don't know why he or whoever got the idea to do this, watch the video. They're kicking off this Mozart festival. Sure enough, there's Cabrera in the pinstripes up on the podium. He conducts the orchestra 
for a couple of chords, I guess. Takes a little bow. Slatkin goes back up on the podium. And Cabrera slaps him on the ass. <laughs> like they're in the locker room. <laughs> the, the problem, I, it's, I think it's the funniest thing I've seen all week. It's been a bizarre week. It's been a really bizarre week. That, that was definitely, definitely a highlight for me. Short disabled list, by the way, too, this week, which has been nice. Um, Sophie Koch pulling out of the, the run of Bizet's Carmen. We're going to give you a little bit of music before we wrap the show up. We talked about Norma with Kevin Newbery early on. This is a little clip for you. Joan Sutherland singing, Richard Bonning conducting. The, the resident in the aria, Dormino Entrambi, is the famous piece from the beginning of Act Two when Norma is looking at her sleeping children, deciding on whether or not to kill them. Give you a couple minutes of this to relax, and then we'll be back to wrap this show up. on Opera Box Score. Hey, thanks for spending your last hour with us on the show. It's been a blast. I love this show, actually. It was so quiet. Very calm and zen in here. I got three good calls tonight. First one is up here at the studio, just outside the studio at Northwestern. They have their own ice rink which is open to students. I have my own skates because I love skating. I'm a huge Detroit Red Wings fan. In fact, I, when I was growing up, I really wanted to play for the Red Wings, and I was just too small, and so I became an opera director. But I love skating up here. Great way to work out. Hey, I also figured out that there's a lot of ways to watch live opera online, and it's through this website called the Opera Platform. Again, they don't pay us to say this. Check it out. It gives you access to 15 different European opera houses as part of this platform, and they release archival videos made throughout this season right here, right now. You can see some of the greatest work that's happening in Europe just on your laptop. I'm going to try and watch one of these. I don't think I can do one a week, but I think I can do one a month probably. Hey, last good call was the Women's March in Chicago on Saturday. I went down with my family. Uh, if you know my personal Facebook page, you can you can check out some of the photos. But uh, whew, what a crowd. Great work. It's just the beginning. 
my question to you is, what are you going to do every day to fight this fight? Hey, that's it for this week's show. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Amber Carter is our sound technician at WNUR. The programming director is Nick Anderson, and the general manager is Brax Ducey. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook and Twitter, search for Opera Box Score. It's that easy. Like our Facebook page, share, and comment on our posts, and of course, tweet us at Opera Box Score. Subscribe to our podcast version of the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Give us 30 seconds of your time. Leave a review on iTunes. It's the cheapest, it's the fastest way to promote our show. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera out on the ice rink. We're back next Monday night at 9 Central. More headlines, our hot takes on them. Be there. Street Beat is up next with DJ Joe. This is WNUR FM Evanston, Chicago. Chicago Sound Experiment.